Welcome to Zen Mind, a podcast featuring talks from Zenki Dillo Roshi, the guiding teacher at the Boulder Zen Center in Boulder, Colorado. If you are enjoying these talks and you would like to dive deeper into the topics discussed by Zenki Roshi in this podcast, consider becoming a premium subscriber. This will give you access to recorded Q&A sessions related to each talk, as well as previously unreleased talks from our intensives. Becoming a premium subscriber helps to support the continuation of the podcast and Zanki Roshi's teachings. Learn more about it by clicking the link in the show notes. As always, you're welcome to join us live for these Dharma Talks. You can join us online via Zoom or in person. You can find a link to our website with the Dharma Talk schedule and more information also in the show notes. Now here's Zanki Roshi. Good morning. A number of years ago, uh, a friend of mine, who was also a Buddhist practitioner, was diagnosed with an incurable cancer, and um, he started to talk to me about meaning. And... um, And I've learned uh, a few things from this, from these interactions. One is that um, Buddhism doesn't seem to really explicitly talk about meaning. It's sort of, there's something implicit about it, but it's not explicitly addressed, and therefore he uh, raised this question. It it was unanswered for him. <clears throat> Another thing I learned is that the question of meaning, um, meaning of life, right, of a human existence, your human existence, is um, comes up with more intensity when the finiteness or finality of your life becomes more apparent. I mean, it's always there, but we forget about it. Don't take it so seriously. Oh, there'll be another day, there'll be another year, there'll be another decade. This is different for people who have gone through existential threats and crisis, and sometimes the feeling can be like, I'm on borrowed time, or I've got a second chance. Um, This focuses us in a different way. And the other thing I learned is that um, questions of meaning are incredibly personal. They're not something that someone else can answer for you. They engage um, the uniqueness of our uh, life. So here I am in this context of uh, of Buddhism, and uh, I don't know. Somehow I feel compelled to think with you about meaning, and um, maybe Buddhism doesn't have any (laughs) clear answers. Now, um, a note on the future of Buddhism. I don't know what it will be, uh, what it can be. I don't think it will stay the same. It's never stayed the same. It is something different now in the West than it was in uh, Asian cultures, or is in Asian cultures. And uh, I don't feel competent to make predictions or even take a lead in something particularly, but I can feel certain tendencies like sanghas are aging, the way Buddhism is presented is not as attractive now as it was in the 60s and 70s to many people. Um, People are less idealistic about enlightenment. There were great, great hopes than you saw the so-called enlightened masters 
you know, mess up. And then you're like, well, maybe it's not that grand anyway. <clears throat> so things have happened that have changed the overall mental posture around Buddhism and how people are attracted to it. But still, you know, I feel I'm practicing it because it has transformed my life. And so I'm sort of have this loose vision, idea that Buddhism will be a collection of transformative methods. <clears throat> and um, transformation of self, culture and society. And I hope that this collection of methods of transformation will um, be freed from the stupidity of being confined to, you know, certain narrow traditions and schools. At the same time, there are difficulties in stepping away from traditions and schools. Um, one is that the people who explore a certain set of methods deeply don't have time to explore other sets of methods deeply too, so they just pass on what they know intimately. And there's just a limitation of time and energy that one individual has. And It just means I think it's useful to stay alert and open to kind of other methods or, you know, what else is there to not be, to not take on your tradition and your methods as some kind of truth of the capital T and become narrow-minded in that way. The other thing is the uh, what's hard about jettison traditions is... Um, I think uh, transformation needs embodiment and uh, intimacy. And one way to engage in training embodiment and intimacy is through ritual. And it's really difficult to invent meaningful ritual. So the kind of embodiment and intimacy that you have maybe experienced through a certain kind of tradition, even though it's outmoded and a little bit, you know, foreign and antiquated, <laughs> it's sort of like valuable to keep it around. Because if you get rid of it, then this uh, important dimension starts to maybe you know, it's it's missing, potentially. Okay, there's just some ideas. I think transformation starts with transformation of self, but it becomes a bit self-centered if it doesn't also take into account culture and society. However, we have a real problem now in our time and age. Like, any visions of transforming culture and society, I think, have become extremely suspect. I mean, you really want someone to tell you what the ideal culture and society is, and you feel like you can subscribe to that? <laughs> um, we have rightfully become, I think, suspicious of any systems because systems so easily become coercive, even if they're the most well-meaning. At the same time, we've now, I think, reached in our culture a, a level of atomization and um, fragmentation that, that starts to show that, you know, without functioning systems and um, shared meanings, it's actually pretty impossible to maintain civilization and you know it's like things will fall apart if those 
systems that we both take for granted and hate and find coercive, you know, start to crumble. It's uh, really frightening. So, so we're stuck. You know, on the one hand, we need systems to be able to live a shared, civilized life, and at the same time, um, we don't want the the confinement and the terror of, you know, systems that start to, you know, govern us in in harmful ways. <clears throat> so I don't know. I I don't think there's any clear answer. Um, When I um, when I say I want to speak about meaning, uh, meaning doesn't meaning has <laughs> more than one meaning. The word meaning has more than one meaning. Um, the first meaning is, of meaning is some kind of the meaning of a word or the meaning of a sentence or the meaning of a text. That's not what I'm talking about, right? That's like that would be a, an academic discipline like semantics or semiotics that deal with this kind of meaning. I'm talking about questions like what um, makes life worth living? Um, or like in the case of my friend, did I do the right thing in my life? Did I meet my responsibilities? Um, fully enough. Um, but also probably unanswerable questions that we still have as human beings. Like, why did it unfold just like that? <laughs> How come I got involved with this partner and had children? And why did I put myself on this path, you know, with this teacher and this tradition. <clears throat> Maybe these questions are unanswerable, but they're still kind of there. It's like there are, there's a dimension, I think, in our life that where we can feel into things like purpose and value and mm, the significance of events. This is what's covered by this uh, term meaning for or the way I want to talk about it. <clears throat> or the way I'm feeling about it right now. Reaching for, <laughs> reaching for words. There's a German public intellectual who um, recent, fairly recently wrote a book uh, called, I have to see how the title translated, it would be like um, Obituary of Myself or Obituary <laughs> About Myself. Mm -hmm. Obituary, an obituary of myself. And I haven't read the book, but I heard him speak about it on YouTube, you know where we get our information. <laughs> Who reads books anymore? Um, I do, <laughs> occasionally. Um, the idea is something like an obituary Let's say it's not it's not himself writing an obituary about himself, but someone else writing an obituary of him. It would be what will I what will I have done that is worth showing up in my obituary? That's a question of meaning. <clears throat> in a way, you know, what's worthwhile doing, what is of value to others, what will be remembered about me, and so forth. But he took it to this other level of like what if I was writing an obituary about myself now, imagining what will I will have done when I die, and can I feel that that will be in alignment with 
the deepest intentions that I have. So it's kind of an interesting exercise, right? It's like, because it makes you wonder is like, is what I'm doing really what I, is what I'm doing what I really want to do? And what are the, are there options? What kind of transformation, what kind of shift would need to happen that I am more fully aligned with, um, with what really matters? Now, what really matters is, I, I'll get to this more later, is there is no objectivity about this. I mean, we sort of want, maybe desire some objective, universal answer about what matters. I don't, I don't think that exists. <clears throat> but there is something that we do have a we we do each have a feeling about what matters. We may uh, defend against it in a certain way because it would make a demand on us. But anyway, I think it's there in in a in a certain dimension of our mind and influences us. Viktor Frankl, this uh, Austrian psychotherapist who survived the um, concentration camps of uh, you know, Nazi Germany, he um, wrote this very well-known, influential book, uh, Man in Search of Meaning, and has taught about meaning and constructed a therapy around meaning instead of, you know, sexual desire, like Freud did, another Austrian. Um, he, he says, basically, the, the core maxim of his um, approach to therapy is to live your life um, as if you're living it for a second time. In the awareness of, of what you've done wrong the first time you lived around <laughs> and noticing how you're about to make the same mistakes now that you did in your first life. And he says this is a good method to heighten um, our sense of responsibleness. <laughs> you know, I have worked for myself with the term responsibility, so we always are in situations of responding to the circumstances of our life. And we have that ability to respond, and from exercising this ability of responding in alignment with our deepest intentions, we fulfill our responsibility. <clears throat> I guess, like in the case of my friend who I led with, who um, feels the finiteness of his life under the impression of this diagnosis. There is this question of like, so now what do I do um, with this limited time? How do I fulfill my response Ability, my responsibility as the ability to respond. So, we're all in this situation. Because, although we forget, it is unclear how long we have to live. It could be a very short time. It could be a longer time. 
it doesn't really matter because what we're pointed to, and this is very much like, you know, an emphasis in Zen practice, is like meaning isn't something that emerge is given to us as some kind of cosmic plan that we can just fit ourselves into. It emerges, Frankl points this out, um, it emerges from moment to moment in the interaction that we have with the circumstances of our life. And so according to him, it's like it is wrong to ask, what does life have in store for me? What can I get out of life to make it make my life more meaningful? You know, this idea of self-actualization. Um, it is it is better, he says, to ask, what is life asking of me? What is there for me to respond to meaningfully? If we do that then, you know, a sense of self-actualization might be, you know, an add-on that we get. Happiness would be that in that category, too. Get not really able to make happiness happen. Happiness is kind of an accidental quality of um, responding to what life asks of you. Well, I, I want to tell you maybe um, a few stories <laughs> uh, in hope that you find a, a version of yourself in, the, in those stories. Uh, one story is like of my younger self. I felt... Um, a strong sense of a lack of clarity about what to do in with my life, with the world, what was worth doing. And when you're a young person, you have to make decisions, you know, like you go to a certain kind of school or you train in particular skills or you're looking for what kind of profession you want to have and uh, what people to to engage with and so forth. And underneath this, which is, you know, something that started in my teenage years, right? It's like there was a hope, pretty strong hope, desire, also kind of expectation that there would be answers. <laughs> that it would be worthwhile, like, reading books or, you know, listening to people or and find out about how to answer this um these kinds of questions. Uh, religion, I don't know. I wasn't, I just dealt with religion because I was born into it. You know, it was like Protestant Christianity, Lutheran, you know, in Germany. It's like, which is, I think, just what happens. Like most of what we're dealing with, we're just kind of born into and osmotically take on mental postures and then as we age we just kind of have to come to terms with all these mental postures that we've taken on it's kind of like you don't get like a blank slate and then say like oh let me pick and choose no which is very obvious when you talk to catholics you know it's like you can't undo catholicism uh, catholicism it's like always a catholic so it's like i say this you know affectionately and like you can only be a recovering Catholic. <laughs> yeah, you, you get into it and then, you know, these mental postures are put on you and then it's like, ah, how can I get out of this? <clears throat> Not necessarily get out of it or, you know, make it my own or transform it or make sense of it, all that.
So my fantasy, which I didn't understand at the time, but now I look at it, my fantasy was there would be answers, there would be a system, there would be a rule book, there would be things that you were supposed to do. And, you know, I was so inclined to just follow those shoulds and, you know, fulfill them and uh, make a good life out of this existence. Now, you can do this in terms of religion, you can do this in terms of societal norms, you can do this in terms of, you know, cultural trends or whatever, you know, it's just like, hoping that there's kind of a system that you can fit yourself in. And if you do, then things make sense and have meaning, and you have a place in that and so forth. Well, it didn't work. (laughs) This kind of stability or sense of security of following the shoulds never came. So I was, uh, I, it came, I came to a point where I just wanted to all, throw it all away. It's like, you know, crap. Academia. You know, it's like, what is this? Like, it's not teaching me anything relevant. Which is, of course, not true. But, you know, then you, maybe, maybe you know this, you could, you could go into some kind of rebellion, you know. But it's, I learned later in reflecting on this that it's a kind of, I don't even have a word for this, it's a kind of parasitic rebellion. It's like you reject things, you think things are not good enough for me, you know, these systems and so forth, while using them all the time to sustain your life. <clears throat> Some people don't become rebellious like this, but I did. And I just wanted to throw it all away and, you know, not basically not care about the practicalities of life. Just a bit stupid. Not sustain that's stupid, I don't know. Not sustainable. And underneath it is actually a kind of feeling of if there isn't a given objective universal meaning that I can hook into, then there's no meaning at all. And then things don't really matter. And you're kind of free, and you're kind of free to just make something out of your life and whatever you want. This is, um, I think this is basically the pervasive situation of um, Western culture right now. It's like there are people who still cling to sort of these systems of meanings and try to hold them up even though they know it's like it's it's just like we're just making it up and um and other people are explicit about it and says like well you're just making it up so then well what do we want to make up anything can be made up like Donald Trump, you know, he can become president in some system, you know, it's governed by a constitution. And then when he's president, he says, oh, let's just suspend this constitution. I'll just do what I want. This is nihilism. In terms of meaning, this is nihilism. There is no, there are no given meanings. It's, they either don't exist, or if some meanings exist, they're just subjective, they're arbitrary, they're just made up. So you wrest some sort of subjective meaning from an overall meaninglessness, a universe that's just atoms and molecules, and you know, how is there any meaning in an atom? You know, I can't find anything. So, well, if there's any meaning, then humans are just putting it on top of a meaningless physical universe. And then, if you really believe that, well, then why should you go along with someone else's meaning? You just make up your own, and then you have a um, a postmodern world in which everyone just like has their own meaning, or has a little subgroup of meaning, or you know. People get so afraid of that that they have to like cling to the old ways and say like, no, no, like, oh, we have to keep keep. Uh, 
holding on to certain grand narratives like religion or, you know, universal ideas of the Constitution or human rights. It's obvious that human rights don't apply everywhere, right? Like some people, some nation states don't take them the way we like them to. You know, it's like we just see the diversity. Okay, so I'm in this kind of nihilistic rebellion phase, say, right? A certain romanticism goes along with it. It's like, oh, I'm free, you know. So in this freedom of throwing everything away, I went from Germany to America because it's like, well, just let's see what's happening somewhere else. And I stumbled into Zen practice, Buddhism, you know. And something really profound happened for me. And it's still kind of difficult to say what it is, but I've spoken about it before. It's like I sat down pretty early on in just my sitting down. I uh, had this very bodily feeling of feeling unapologetically alive is the phrase that I've used for this. It's just like feeling um, an immediacy and presence of my own existence and aliveness and it felt um, very indeterminate in the sense that it had no particular content but it was it felt very solid at the same time it's like here i am now what it cured my depression it's depressing when you're a nihilist. <laughs> it's totally depressing. It's so depressing. It's like, oh, nothing has meaning. I have to just, you know, like get a little bit somehow by making an effort. Gee. <clears throat> Why not kill yourself? That was just gone. It's like, wow, this is, it's like you step, you, you put your foot down and there's the ground and it feels like you feel supported and there's like blue sky and sun. And, you know, when I ask myself, um, if I only have a week to live, like what would I do now? If I ask myself this question now, which I do now and then, it's like the first thing that I do is just, I can just come back to the sensory aliveness of you know being in the world is like oh that's what mindfulness really is it's like feel your feet on the ground drink a glass of you know drink water and then man that's really delicious <laughs> it's fresh it's cool it's life-sustaining makes your mouth wet Jeez, it's just the best thing in the world. <laughs> I mean, I feel that way about if I'm in that if I'm in that frame of mind, I feel that way about accounting. It's like, oh, you know, here's this receipt, it goes into that category. It's like you order things, you make it work, you have, you know, and then you get grasp on your finances how delicious is that it's fantastic i'm not kidding that's how i feel <laughs> <laughs> if i see it as a chore it's like oh god i have to come it that's gone <clears throat> we see it as an expression of aliveness it's like i get this opportunity to to do something you know it feels meaningful and actually quite enjoyable you know Columns of numbers that add up to zero. Wait, man, it's like a glass of water. You 
Now, this experience of unapologetic aliveness is a nonverbal experience. Was a non nonverbal experience for me. It's just um, um, awareness and bodily energy, you know, all packed into this here now moment. You don't get a life from that. I mean, a life in terms of like what to do, or, you know, you just get, <laughs> you just get a yes to existence, which is a lot. Now, Zen practice for me was always, uh, you know, investigating the mind and its verbose qualities, like, I usually call it discursive thinking. It's like, you know, discursive thinking floating around in your meditation, narratives, fragments of narratives, really, uh, wondering what to do, regrets about what you have done, memories like traumatic events that you can't sh seem to shed that keep floating around and, you know, all of that. I can't, you know, I could endlessly describe, you know, all the, all these verbal qualities and imaginal qualities of the mind. So when we um, practice meditation and notice that discursiveness and return to the breath and return to the breath and return to the breath and return to body sensations and posture, we're, we're learning to not be identified with the this discursive contents of the mind. And so I was engaged in this practice for decades. So, so sometime years into doing this practice, I had this um, experience actually doing walking meditation, doing a sashin, and I've mentioned this before. It's like I had a moment where all meaning drained out of the world. That's the way it felt. It's like I was looking at the world. Everything was just blank. It's like... There are no words that um, sort of attach to objects. Like, yeah, you could attach a word, but I mean, you could attach all kinds of words or no word. Or And there was also a blankness of um, of any kind of orientation. I called this experience bad emptiness. I don't know if that's an accurate description, but that's how I call it. It's like, oh, that's that's emptiness, but feels kind of bad. <laughs> this was for me an embodied experience of nihilism. Nothing is meaningful. Nothing has semantic meaning that can be stabilized in any way. And even the whole visual quality of the scene or you know the sensory appearance is like it was just like a weird flat dream or something grayish dream didn't it i think it's some kind of detachment disorder or derealization or something uh experience could be a bit frightening i wasn't frightened i was just like ooh, is this enlightenment I hope not. <laughs> uh, a fellow practitioner told me about an enlightenment experience he had, or he thought he had. He was like, he was also walking. He was also walking along, and he had this feeling like everything was just coming together swimmingly, the whole universe was in communion and, you know, everything was, I mean, the feeling was like everything is just going my way. All my problems are solved. I'm here. I feel light and relieved and, you know, everything will unfold in a way that's just, you know, fitting for me personally like that. And then as he's walking along with that kind of feeling, which I think is really powerful, 
he stubbed his toe on a rock. <laughs> and it all collapsed. And he's like, oh, shit. <laughs> now I have to deal with this. I find this, I found this story extremely interesting because I think that's everybody's fantasy of enlightenment, actually. Not everybody's. I'm just saying, if you have a fantasy about enlightenment that is the solution to your, it is actually that fantasy. And I think what's so interesting about it is like, it can be real. The mind can actually produce that state. And maybe, you know, I have very few experiences with, almost not, no experience with drugs. But I had good friends who were, you know, using cocaine. And <laughs> sometimes I think that thing was like, I'm just on top of the world. Everything is just coming my way, the way I want. I'm all powerful. It's basically, it's like as if you're on cocaine. Maybe you become a little bit more aggressive than my friend was when you're on cocaine, but it starts to become kind of aggressive. It's like, what I, you know, and I think, anyway. Geez, I'm just telling stories and weird things, and it's like, wrap this up get some kind of message together meaning is what we're talking about Buddhism has this um, teaching of the middle way in or in the sutras, originally, the middle way is something like steer clear of the extremes of um, indulgence and asceticism. Don't indulge in some pleasures. You, that's not making a good life. And also don't um, deny yourself the nourishment of, you know, uh, asceticism. You know, so avoid those extremes. But there's also the middle way between the extreme views of eternalism and nihilism, as it's called. Eternalism would be what I just said. If we apply it to meaning, it would be something like there's an objective universal truth with a capital T that is out there, a rule book of ethics that you just have to adopt. And if you do, you are in alignment with God, the cosmos, pure reason, uh, the truth with a capital T, and that's how to orient your life. And one version of that is basically my friend's experience of like the self merges with the universe, and basically nobody says this in this pop spirituality and you know versions of Advaita Vedanta and you know, whatever is out there. All this is a conglomerate of like basically I am God. And this, this uh, true self that is actually like God is unassailable. And if you hook up with that, you're, you're, you're good. Until you stub your toe. Or something worse than stubbing your toe. Some meaningless event happens that somehow shakes your confidence in the cosmic plan that you are actually owning as God. <laughs> that would be an eternalist view. And a nihilistic view would be nothing matters. Meanings don't exist. And if they exist, they're only subjective. And if they're only subjective, then actually it's as if they don't exist because there's nothing shared about them. And then we're all lost as individuals in a kind of free-floating meaninglessness. This is postmodernity.
And Buddhism says, steer clear of these two extremes. Now, I think what happens when you try to steer clear of these two extremes, you're actually constantly flip-flopping between them as a first approximation of steering clear. It's like when you recognize, like I did as a younger person, that I'm stuck in this idea of like trying to fit myself into a master plan and it doesn't work, then you flip-flop and say, well, if there isn't a grand narrative of meaning or if, if there isn't this like cosmic plan, then it must all be meaningless. But when you arrive at it's all meaningless, this is not a life you want to live. So then you're hoping, and this is why I think people like me become spiritual, um, then you're hoping for getting the uh, getting the eternalistic you know, approach. You're hoping to get it through some kind of modernized spirituality that isn't just like stupid Christianity, um, but, you know, some more sophisticated way of dealing with God and the true self. And then you end up in that, you end up on that side again <clears throat> until you stub your toe. Both these stances, eternalism and nihilism, if you see them as versions of each other, actually have a truth. It's like the the attraction of nihilism is to say, like, this overarching universal meaning truly doesn't exist. This is what's true about nihilism. And what's true about eternalism is that nihilism can't be correct. There, there is actually meaning. It just doesn't exist. So then you come back with nihilism. It just doesn't exist in this universal, objective way. All-encompassing. So steering clear, and this is Buddhist emptiness, steering clear of these two extremes is actually deeply acknowledging and appreciating the vagueness of our life, the ambiguity of our life, the everything that cannot be pinned down, the changeability of everything, the groundlessness, that you can't land anywhere, <clears throat> that you can't make yourself a secure nest of meaning or identity and purpose, a set of values, a rule book of ethics, all of this is actually not available. It's not guaranteed by God. It's not guaranteed by other by smart people. Let me just find somebody who can explain it. But it's also not true that just because that universal meaning doesn't exist, that life is meaningless. Meaning appears in as, as an interaction, situational interaction with the circumstances of your life. Which, what we want to cultivate is an openness, like Frankel says, to respond to what the circumstances of our life ask of us. And this is great because we are different people. We are unique in the, like, nobody shares your circumstances, your specific circumstances. Like, you know, we have all different, um, patterns on our fingers. It's like, it's kind of amazing. And, but if you extrapolate this, it's like we have all different patterns of our, the circumstances in our personality and how we interact with it. So how we, how we take that on is actually our unique life that is that fills with meaning as we're taking that on. So when I remember sitting 
with this, what I call unapologetic aliveness, if I feel more deeply into this, not just as a cure for depression, but if I feel into this more deeply, it's like it, there is this quality of openness and willingness to respond and be engaged. Rather, depression is something like, and I'm not talking about all kinds of depression, but this, this sort of not maybe clinically depressed, but, but this un, depression can have this feeling of like, I'm not really willing to take on the difficulty of the circumstances of my life. And I feel actually more comfortable being confined in this box of just, just enough apathy. And then meaning doesn't arise. Meaning doesn't actually appear. It's like the willingness to come out of that box and engage with the circumstances is like demands of you to say like, well, what does matter? What is important to me? For what do I have a shred of passion? <laughs> so in this still sitting, this existential aliveness and this openness is a way of engaging without ever trying to fixate on anything as the permanent solution for something you know there's a kind of openness and fluidity and willingness to change and at the same time you engage with the patterns and circumstances of your everyday uh, life not trying to get over it or transcend it into some other, you know, spiritual godlike realm. So, if you have one day or one week or let's say a year to live, what are you going to what are you going to do? What makes sense? Don't think about it. Don't try to answer it abstractly. You know, it's like you're not going to get an answer. Just yesterday, somebody asked, will you write me a letter of recommendation? I want to apply for this job. And I'm like, yes, I will do that. There's meaning. Somebody things, I can write a letter of recommendation. <laughs> my, life makes, my life has value in that moment. Right? Like if, but if you just look at, and then, oh, that's, that's a funny, this, this, no, but if you add, add all these moments of responsiveness, Some, some something emerges from that. Thank you very much. <laughs>